Tonight, another cold case from the Metro Police homicide file. It's a murder from 1973. The longer a case goes cold, the harder it is to solve. Maybe if it was solved, if they could find out who did it, um, it would help. We're hoping that someone saw something, knows something, remembers something that might help us finally find justice for her. Welcome to the Searching for Closure podcast, a real-time investigative podcast looking into the 1973 unsolved homicide of Tina Davison. I'm Sean McGregor. I wanted to start out this episode with a couple of updates. In episode three, I went to visit Tina's grave for the very first time. One of the takeaways from that experience was the fact that I didn't see anyone buried next to Tina. I was saddened that Tina's mother was not buried next to her. In recent weeks, however, I've learned from an inside source that in fact her mother's ashes actually sit on top of Tina's grave. I have no way of verifying this, but it makes me feel a little bit better to think that Tina is not alone. Second, I'm looking to the future. This podcast was never going to be on only one case until I solved it. I knew from the start that the odds of me, an untrained, normal guy, solving it were very slim. I always planned on doing multiple seasons dedicated to different cases. I knew that eventually the evidence I could collect would run out, and the amount of evidence I've been able to get is about at its end. There will be 10 episodes total in the first season, which is dedicated to Tina's case, so we're over halfway there. In between examining evidence and leads, I'm keeping a list of possible cases for the next season. I want to keep cold cases in the light and bring in fresh eyes to examine things. If you have any suggestions for a possible cold case or missing persons reports for upcoming seasons, please feel free to post them on the Searching for Closure Facebook group. This podcast is meant to help, and if I can do that in any way, I'll be more than happy to. I've had a lot of positive feedback from listeners. Most people have nothing but good things to say. It's all very encouraging and supportive. They thank me for trying to bring this cold case back into the light, to perhaps get new leads and new tips. They're happy that I'm doing this. They wish me the best of luck in a truly sincere way. But I've also had a few people come at me with fairly strong negativity. Listeners have told me that people are suspicious that I'm trying to find out who might know something, who might be willing to talk 45 years later, or that I'm trying to locate a specific person or persons who knew something but were too afraid to talk. That, to me, kind of sounds suspicious in and of itself. Yes, people are more inclined to speak 45 years after a crime. Maybe the killer has been living with remorse or guilt for 45 years and is finally ready to come clean. I've also had people make some pretty hard accusations against me. Some people have speculated that I might be tied to the killer somehow. I think it's pretty well known that I wasn't born until well after Tina was already buried. It's kind of absurd to think that I somehow am the killer. I know that some serial killers like to taunt the police like Jack the Ripper or the Zodiac Killer. 
But for me to kill someone before I was born and then 45 years later call the deputy chief of police to ask questions about it kind of sounds like an episode of The Twilight Zone. Or to think that perhaps I know the killer or am related to them is also kind of crazy. If I knew someone who committed such a vicious act, why would I be reporting about it on a podcast? I'm just a normal person. I work a normal job. I just happen to enjoy podcast and true crime. So I combine them together to make this show. To make a difference and try to do something good. I guess some people just see negativity in everything. Maybe in future seasons of Searching for Closure, I'll pick a case that isn't in my hometown. And maybe I'll have to go back further than 45 years or so, so it's not more obvious that I could have had nothing to do with this crime. I'm 99% positive that I do not have the tools or means to solve this case. I'm not a professional. I'm not in law enforcement. I'm not a private investigator. I stated that many times on this podcast. I just want to understand this case and spread the word. It's no different than a missing person sign on the back of a milk carton. I truly do understand the severity of this case that it involves real people. This isn't a Hollywood production. This happened in real life. Family members lost an actual loved one. I get that. And I try to be as sensitive in the subject as possible. I've even reworded news articles that seem kind of insensitive by today's standards. Also in the past few weeks, I was contacted by a listener that went to Tina's grave to plant flowers on her headstone. She met a woman there. That woman was Tina's sister. What this listener told me was a much different story than I was previously told. I was originally told that I terrified Bonnie and that she didn't want to speak to me. The person who told me this said it in such a way that I was mortified by what I'd done. I went so far as to issue a formal apology to Bonnie on this podcast. The new story that I'm being told now said that Bonnie did want to talk to me that she wanted to help, that she gave the note to a friend who had access to the internet, but that friend went and told me that Bonnie didn't want to talk. Two completely different tales, so which one do I believe? Regardless of what I believe, I still won't be reaching out to Bonnie. It's simply not my place. She's suffered a lot since the beginning of this story, and I don't want her to suffer anymore. All that I ask from people who reach out to me is be honest with me. I'll keep your identity private. I will not put any words in your mouth. Just speak the truth to me. I've also received warnings from multiple people. They say, I better be careful. The killers, yes, killers as in plural, more than one, may be looking for me if I get too close to the truth. I get it that people are scared. I myself... I'm also scared, but do I believe that there's a gang of maniacal murderers walking around the streets of the town I live in? Do I believe there's a band of serial killers in their 60s hanging out together in Racine with their earbuds in listening to this podcast, sharpening their blades, and plotting to keep themselves hidden in the shadows? No, I don't believe that. Why not? 
because I don't have any evidence. I can only go off facts. The rest is purely speculation. I have no facts of any unknown killers. I have no facts of anyone that I've named or I've censored their name out in this case. I have no evidence that ties anyone to the crime. Also, I won't accuse anyone. I won't falsely accuse anyone, and I won't directly accuse anyone I actually think is responsible. Because I don't know who's responsible, and I doubt I ever will. Sure, I may speculate on convicted killers who actually exist, but I also won't name anyone else. In fact, I bleeped out addresses and full names and changed the names of people who have spoken to me. I'm not here to point fingers at anyone in this town. That's not my intent. I have zero evidence on anyone. In fact, almost all the evidence I have is just a Google search away from anyone's fingertips. If my Google skills are better than veteran police investigators' actual detective skills, then I really should put in an application with the FBI. It's just not possible for someone like me to accomplish in a little over a month what police couldn't do with all the evidence and information that they have in over 45 years. If I had to place a wager on what happened, honestly, I'd put my money on a random attack. Or a serial killer. That's what the evidence I've seen points to. And all I can go off of is the evidence that I have. I'm just reporting on a murder. A 45-year-old unsolved murder. I don't know the schooling, training, or means to solve it. I'm just telling the story and speculating on what I see as I see it. And having said that, on with the show. Before I started this podcast, I never would have thought that Racine had many murders. I knew that, sure, there were bad elements, drug deals gone wrong, gangs, domestic violence that ended in tragedy, but I never would have expected so many unsolved homicides. In the last episode, I only investigated up till 1983. A listener, however, has pointed out three unsolved homicides that really stuck out to her. So, I thought I'd spend a little bit more time on this episode detailing those cases to see if I can add to the pattern I already developed. One that I missed was from 1983, one from 1987, and one from 1990. On February 20th, 1983, Helen Sebastian, who was 51 years old, placed a large beef roast in her oven. She left her flat in the 1800 block of Center Street and disappeared. To put that into perspective in regards to Tina's case, Helen lived roughly five blocks from where Tina's body had been found on the shore of Lake Michigan. Within days, friends and family started to search for Sebastian. She was last seen walking south on Grand Avenue near 13th Street. About five weeks later, On March 28th, a 10-year-old boy led detectives to the backyard of a vacant home in the 1400 block of 12th Street, 
that's only about a mile away from where she was last seen. The boy thought he saw a human hand a few days earlier. When police arrived, they found a lot more than a human hand. They found Helen, or parts of her rather. They found an arm, a hand, and part of a human leg. The next day, police found internal organs wrapped in a paper bag along the Chicago and Northwestern Railroad tracks near 16th Street, just west of Racine Street. On the third day, investigators found Helen's severed head wrapped in paper and plastic bags among weeds along the tracks a block to the south. Her torso was never found, and the cause of death never determined. Less than a month before Helen's death, her sister Jean received a phone call. She picked up, and a female caller asked if she was Helen's sister. When she said she was, the caller frightened her. She said, quote, I'm just warning you, she isn't going to live very long. She asked the woman who she was, but the woman hung up on her. She also said she heard similar sentiments from a man that rented a room in the flat where Helen lived above her mother. Before her sister's death, Jean called Helen. The renter, whom Jean remembers as being a man named Larry, answered the phone and told her Helen wasn't going to live long. Jean asked if she was sick. He said, she's not sick. I'm just warning you. Larry, however, has since been cleared as a suspect. This murder fits the disposal method that was used in the 1969 murder of Stephanie Kasberg. But that's the only similarity I can really find in any of these cases. Helen was 51, at least 34 years older than most of the other victims. Also, Helen was found on March 28th, 1983, which is exactly 10 years and one day since the body of Tina Davison was found, which is a pretty incredible coincidence. But she went missing on February 20th, over a month earlier. Another factor that I believe separates this case from Tina, or any of the other girls from the last episode, is Helen's lifestyle. Jean said her sister was an alcoholic. She was married twice, but divorced her first husband and was widowed by her second. Her single life was spent with different kinds of people than her family-orientated siblings. There's also a series of taverns that were broken into and robbed from on 6th Street in the month prior. Along with the murder of an elderly woman who lived above a jewelry store on 6th Street. I believe it's much more likely that Helen and the elderly woman either simply saw something they weren't supposed to see or knew too much and had to be silenced to protect whomever was breaking into those taverns. The next case is from 1987. 28-year-old Derby Wagner Richardson was working as a security guard on the night of March 21, 1987, keeping watch over the E.C. Steiberg Engineering Company building at 1600 Gould Street. Gould Street is much further north than Tina's house, or the previous murder of Helen. It's three and a half miles north, actually, which may not seem all that far, but the city of Racine is basically only seven miles north and south if you draw a straight line. She patrolled the inside of the locked building, surrounded by a fence topped with barbed wire. It was one of the three jobs she held, the other being a fitness counselor 
at the YWCA and a secretary at the Kenosha Visiting Nurses Association. On top of that, she was raising two children and going through a messy divorce. About midnight on that evening, she checked in by telephone with a Wauwatosa security firm she worked for. This was part of her nightly routine, and she was supposed to make them every hour. But her 1 a.m. call never came. The alarm company contacted a Steiberg employee who met police at the plant at about 1.30 a.m., and they started to look for Derby. Meanwhile, a man living on Island Avenue, about a mile away, found some of her personal papers near his house. At 8.30 that morning, March 22nd, a police officer found the Pontiac Sunbird in an industrial alley just north of Steiberg's. Blood was dripping onto the ground from drain holes in the trunk. Inside it, officers found Derby's naked body. Her mouth gagged with tape. Her throat and wrist were slashed. In the days that followed, searchers turned up evidence of the murder scattered along Spring Street, west of Racine, mostly between Newman and Airline Road. Among the items were her blood-soaked tan uniform shirt, her security badge, a shoulder patch from her uniform, and a brown shoe. A newspaper carrier also turned over her appointment book, which he said he found at Spring Street and Highway H, about 5 a.m. the day she died. Police don't believe that Derby was killed where her body was found. They believe someone probably took her from Steiberg's, locking the gate on the way out. Despite a pile of evidence and a mountain of reports, Racine police have never made an arrest in the case. Her estranged husband, Fred Wagner Richardson, had been pursued as a suspect, but he's maintained his innocence in the slain. Derby's murder and disposal of her body is similar to the 1967 murder of Mary Caldenberg. But Derby was also older than Mary, Stephanie, Terry, and Tina. She was 28. She also had short, curly blonde hair. Also, I believe that if she was inducted from inside the heavily fenced-in and secured lot, that it was most likely either someone who knew her or someone that worked inside. I wonder if police have looked into any delivery drivers that evening. Her whole case could probably be a podcast of its own, and I do have her listed as possible future seasons. But first, I want to work on Tina's, and I don't believe this case has anything to do with hers. The final case brings us to March 6th, 1990. A broken window was the first sign that something was wrong at the small gray house in the 1700 block of Randolph Street. Randolph Street ran along a set of railroad tracks towards the center of the city. When painters hired to refurbish the home went inside that morning, they saw something they never expected and they would never forget. In the living room lay the partially clothed body of Linda Massey, who was 29 years old. The killer apparently made use of supplies workers left overnight. A razor blade utility knife was used to stab her in the throat. Paint was smeared on her body and a bucket was placed over her head. An autopsy showed the stab wound in her neck was fatal. Investigators said she was also sexually assaulted. The killer tried to cover up the crime by pouring paint onto her neck, chest, 
lower abdomen, upper thigh, and inside her purse. He used caulk to try to hide the sexual activity that took place as well, but he missed one small piece of evidence, a small piece that would prove to be huge. A faint stain of semen was found on Massey's inner thigh. In 2004, 14 years after the murder, police made an arrest. 44-year-old Albert Hill of New Albany, Mississippi, was formally arrested and charged. Hill was no stranger to the police. In April of 1990, Hill was arrested for slashing another man in the neck at 6th Street and Franklin Street. He was convicted of battery and sentenced to a year in prison. In 1993, he was charged with second-degree sexual assault of a woman, but that charge was dismissed because prosecutors couldn't locate the victim. He had been in jail since he was arrested on April 22nd for allegedly smoking crack. Authorities had linked Hill to the murder using DNA evidence that he had submitted after going to prison in 2000. I could not find if he had been convicted or not. Judging by the lack of articles, no court records, and a 2016 cold case on Linda's case that I saw online, I assume that he wasn't found guilty. But if he was 43 in 2004, he would have only been 13 years old when Tina was murdered. That doesn't exclude him as a suspect, but it says he's from Mississippi, so I'm not sure if he lived here in Racine in 1973. But it appears that he has passed away on September 4th, 2011, at 50 years old. I couldn't find any photos or a description of Linda, but much like Derby and Helen, she was much older than the four girls, and I don't believe that they were connected. Something else makes me think this case is not connected. When Linda Massey was murdered at age 29, she left behind three children. The oldest had gone to live with his grandparents in Chicago. The state of Wisconsin had already taken the other two away and put them in foster homes. The state had apparently decided Linda couldn't be trusted for the care of her children. The children had ventured out onto their hot shingle roof one night and one of their feet got blistered. That, coupled with their mom's criminal record, was enough to remove the children. I read multiple articles that recounted Linda Massey's drug abuse problem. It also said that she was a prostitute. This does not mean to put the victim down in any way. It just points out that she was completely different than the four other girls. In the last episode, I considered the fact that perhaps Tina wasn't murdered by a serial killer. Tina's childhood friend touched upon a theory of the murder being a satanic sacrifice. This wasn't the first time that I'd heard this or read about that theory. In the next episode, I'll be exploring it more in depth. The whole mindset behind satanic panic, where it started, and what drives it. Along with a very interesting article from a man who claims to have known Tina and spoke to her long after her death. If you knew Tina or have any tips or clues regarding her unsolved murder, please contact me at info at searchingforclosure.com or participate in our Facebook group, 
to search Facebook for Searching for Closure. Every time I post a new episode, I'll also be posting a new blog entry with notes, pictures, videos, and news articles. You can find that at www.searchingforclosure.com. Please rate and review us on iTunes and make sure you subscribe so you get notified every time there's a new episode. Also, please spread the word on Tina. Her case has remained unsolved for 45 years and deserves closure. Until next time, thank you for listening.